welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. This is Scott Parkin, co-host of the Green and Red podcast here in Berkeley, California. And I'm with my co-host, Bob Bazenko in Ohio. And today we're really excited to have Dave Zirin on to talk about sports and politics with us. Dave is the sports editor of The Nation magazine, uh, the author of 10 books on the politics of sports. Uh, He also hosts The Nation's Edge of Sports podcast, uh, and is a frequent guest on ESPN, MSNBC, and Democracy Now. Uh, you can find all of his good work on his website at edgeofsports.com. Welcome to the Green and Red Podcast, Dave. Oh, it's great to be here. First, I got to tell you, the last name's pronounced Siren, like a fire siren. Okay. Uh, no worries on that. My mom mispronounces it on occasion as well. It's, oh, sorry <laughs> about that. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's a weird Ellis Island chopped name that uh, has an, an un- unthinkable pronunciation, so no worries. <laughs> you know, Dave, we, uh, we know about uh, certain episodes when athletes have taken a stand in politics, the 1968 Olympics, Arthur Ashe, Muhammad Ali's draft resistance, most notably. Uh, but in the past few years, since Colin Kaepernick took a knee for the national anthem, it seems like we've seen an explosion of sports activism. Uh, reaching new heights recently as sports protests have dovetailed with the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, have you ever seen anything like this before? And uh, what do you think it it means for national discussions on race, police, politics, et cetera? Uh, it's interesting. Um, no, no, we've never seen anything like this in the history of sports. I mean, in, the sh- in terms of the sheer breadth of athletes who are speaking out Uh, men, women, trans athletes, um, across the board in different sports, sports that have been resistant historically to protest. Uh, We've seen over the summer strikes for racial justice. Uh, This is very different from anything we've seen. We're operating without a compass in terms of trying to understand this. And, you know, I asked this question of John Carlos, one of the 68 Olympians who raised a fist, and he said, you know, in 68, we were deep politically. We were reading a lot. But these athletes today, it's broader than it's ever been. And I think, and so if we're talking on the level of action, we've never seen anything like this before. And, you know, what we're seeing, you know, I had that conversation with John Carlos about a year ago where he said that to me. And I really do think in the last year, though, you're starting to see a depth politically as well in terms of athletes reading, engaging with the movement that's taking place in the streets. Um, and you know, quoting Angela Davis in press conferences as Jalen Brown did of the Boston Celtics. I mean, so we're, we're in some brand new territory in terms of athletes and activism to the point of which arguments that I used to have to have 10, 15, hell, even five years ago um, about, athlete, about athletic protest being a legitimate place uh, for uh, the focus of the left in this country I mean, that, that's shifted dramatically. I don't even really have to make that argument anymore. Yeah, I mean, in the past, we've always seen celebrities involved in political issues, but it's usually been like Hollywood or musicians, and you can kind of pigeonhole them there, you know, Hollywood liberals or whatever, but athletes, I think, are, are, are really different, and we're seeing this now um, in very different ways. So do, do you think this outspoken activism by professional athletes, whether it be men, women, 
basketball, even some baseball, soccer. I was surprised John Carlos Stanton, of all people, made some really powerful statements early on. Um, do you think that's going to kind of have a different resonance than some of the stuff we've seen before, get more people involved? Because sports we generally think of as a pretty conservative uh, institution. And do you see this moving beyond as we go forward to, you know, let's say Trump tries to do something with the election or, uh, you know, the next time there's a police shooting. I know a lot of uh, people, I think Popovich and Kerr have been involved in gun control issues. So do you think this is just going to kind of snowball into what you just said before? I was, you know, shocked, really. I saw an interview a couple of weeks ago with Isaiah Thomas, who was talking about like Theodore Allen's invention of the white race and, and Bacon's rebellion. And Charles Barkley was talking about how kind of the two parties are the same. So is this something you see kind of continuing and building? And, and do, do these athletes have a special kind of in entry into American political discourse that say, you know, uh, Barbara Streisand or, or whoever wouldn't have, you know? Yeah. Let, let's take that second point first. Um, athletes, not just now, but historically have always had a different kind of resonance in U S society than other people in the entertainment industrial complex. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first one is that, as you mentioned, sports are a very conservative institution. So athletes aren't only bucking against the dominant trends that are put down by ownership or commissioners in those institutions. I think people into it that these athletes are actually risking something. So you could become a Craig Hodges or Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf to speak to players in the 90s who were drummed out of the NBA. You could become a Colin Kaepernick, excuse me, and find yourself drummed out of the NFL. You know, so there's this sense of risk when athletes speak out. And I think that makes people take it more seriously. Uh, the other issue, of course, is that so much, not exclusively, but so much of athletic resistance is centered on the question of race and racism. Um, and so it's the presence of black athletes, particularly black athletes who come from economically uh, disadvantaged backgrounds who have a microphone and have a platform. And how often in society do you see people who are black, who come from poor and working class communities, have the kind of platform to actually speak the truth of their communities. You don't see that in US society, uh, rarely, if at all. And so there's this sense of speaking for the voiceless, being a voice of the voiceless, that's very powerful. Um, and that's also why dating back to Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion, uh, that platform has been policed so assiduously by the powers that be. They don't want athletes speaking out. They want them speaking out to sell things or they want them speaking out to speak to the dominant political ideologies in the sport, whether it's pro-war, pro-cop, uh, pro-corporatism, what have you, but not when it's speaking pro-resistance. So it's not so much sports and politics that don't mix, it's sports and a certain kind of politics that the powers that be say don't mix. Um, as to where it's going, I mean, I can answer that really simply. I mean, I just think the wine is out of the bottle. Um, and I don't know where it's going to go. No idea, because we are operating without a compass here. And, you know, there will be fits and starts, ups and downs. But, you know, we saw athletes take part in demonstrations over the summer. We saw athletes take part in strikes over the summer. We saw athletes do more than what they've done historically, which is just amplify protests in the streets so we're in very new territory and we'll have to see where it goes. Talking about how the establishment is much more happy when the, when the athletes are supporting the status quo uh, politically, you know, when the NBA's players went out on strike or stopped going to games after the Kenosha shooting a couple days later, LeBron James and Chris Paul, you know, talked to Obama who urged players to go back on the court, you know, don't strike, vote, that sort of thing. 
a lot of uh, people on the left who had cheered LeBron uh, began to criticize him pretty harshly. Do you, after, you know, harshly for seeking advice from Obama and going back to play? Do you think that was fair? Uh, and do you think the players have had the same impact, would have had the same impact if they stayed out? I mean, do I think it was fair for a basketball player to seek advice from the first black president about what to do politically? No, I don't think it's fair to criticize him for that. I certainly think it's fair to criticize the advice that Obama gave, which I strongly disagree with um, in terms of the players going back when they went back and focusing on voting instead of focusing on the questions of police uh, reform and the demands that were coming up from the streets. I think Obama did what he does, which was neutralize struggle. Um, but at the same time, I also think, in addition, too much weight has been given as if Obama broke the strike. I mean, you've heard that a lot. Mm-hmm. Way too much, I think, political. I don't think that's a very politically serious analysis, because if you look at what was happening on the ground, um, the Lakers and the Clippers were the only two teams that wanted to keep striking and cancel the playoffs. So, and that was before Obama's intervention, that you had a majority of the playoff teams, overwhelming majority of the playoff teams saying, no, we want to see this through. Now we can agree or disagree with that position, but you get to the basic question of union democracy in terms of what, what the players wanted to do. And LeBron, and this is where sports becomes a very sort of distorted version of the labor movement. Uh, LeBron, because of his star power, I mean, the playoffs would have canceled if the Lakers had left the scene. Uh, that's just a fact. You wouldn't have had the playoffs without LeBron. So, I mean, you could make the case that he had a, a union responsibility to go back, given that that's what the majority wanted to do. Um, I do agree that we should be very critical of the of advice that President Obama gave. I do agree that the NBA players could have gotten more. But I think the analysis that somehow LeBron was wrong to seek out advice or the analysis that um, Obama broke the strike, I think, is just uh, too narrow an analysis. I mean, if they had stayed out, do you think it would have had the same impact? Because, um, you know, in general, I'm, not, I'm obviously not a big fan of Obama either. But um, what you saw was about, you know, what, six weeks, two months after that of kind of a, a seminar in African-American history. And you heard the stories, you know, really poignant stories from Doc Rivers and uh, – uh, Sterling Brown, Thabasis Cephalosha, you know, Maria Taylor on ESPN, um, you know, and, and they're not radicals. They're not revolutionaries. They're telling people to vote and get involved in the community. But do you think, you know, overall, that's still something that, that you know, really kind of emerged and, and has, you know, had a real impact and, and may even carry through, you know, the, re- the arenas are opening up for voting now, the NBA arenas, things like that. Oh, all of that is very powerful. What, what the, the criticism is about the shift from the demands that the Milwaukee Bucks initially put forward, which was about police accountability and the demands that have come up from the streets themselves in what was, let's remember, the largest set of demonstrations in the history of the United States, which took place over the summer. Demonstrations in all 50 states. I mean, I I think, you know, people decry 2020 understandably and talk about it being the worst year ever, understandably, But I think we've been way too quick to sort of uh, move beyond the fact that this summer saw something that nobody has ever seen in their lifetime in terms of demonstrations in the United States. And those demonstrations weren't vote, vote, vote. You know, those demonstrations were about police accountability and stopping racist police violence. And I think that what the players could have done, it's not about staying out indefinitely and canceling the playoffs, but I think what they could have done more 
um, is two things. One, I think they could have leveraged fighting for concrete action from ownership, which is very conservative, but also very politically connected about what they would do, where they would put their money and their political capital towards not the question of voting or opening up arenas as voting centers, but towards the question of police accountability. That's one thing, like really forcing their hand, extracting concessions from ownership, um, which some teams like the Baltimore Ravens and the NFL were able to do in terms of demands put forward by the team that were very much rooted around like the George Floyd Policing Act and things like that. Um, the second thing is that I would have loved to have seen the players, and this might be more uh, leftist uh, wish list stuff, but what I would have loved to see more concrete reaching out to the rest of the labor movement, because I thought that's what was really powerful about what the players did. And that's what I wrote about at the time is, you know, like take like lay the labor. You have these huge demonstrations over the summer. You know, the question comes up, where's labor and all of that? You know, where is the intervention of the labor movement on the question of black lives? And it was really the sports leagues that showed that labor could play a role in these struggles. And I would have liked to have seen something concrete come out of that. Because I'll tell you this, when the players first went out, I mean, I got calls from a ton of people in the labor movement, like a dozen people ranging from union leaders to rank and file folks who have caucuses and unions who wanted to know, like, how can we do stuff like this too? Can you connect me with Chris Paul? I couldn't. But, but like people who really wanted to figure out like how they could make it connect with their union as well. Well, yeah, I think we also, you're in this situation where, you know, it's a union, but it's a, a union of millionaires, which, yeah, you know, it's not like the steel workers. Or, yeah. So, and, and, you know, uh, LeBron and I'm about 45 minutes from Akron right now. So he's a, a you know, obviously a, a, a larger than life in this area, but he's also, you know, kind of a, probably a billionaire investor, Hollywood producer. So I, I you know, that's, that's always a fine line there. You know, I, I think what I saw was this great kind of reaching out early. And I don't know if that part of it was a commodification process or a co-optation. But now I've seen this kind of, uh, in this area, even kind of a retrenchment. So they're starting to kind of criticize Obama. Um, I'm sorry, LeBron James again. So, um, you know, I, I think there's some difficulty there in kind of continuing this because I think deep down, a lot of people still have this kind of shut up and dribble mentality. Yeah. How much of this also can you tie to, uh, you know, just uh, Trump? Trump, you know, went after them in ways that, you know, we really haven't seen before, like a, a president, you know, directly attacking a, an athlete. Yeah. I mean, I think that only speaks to Trump's weakness, quite frankly, and his fear. I mean, LeBron's got a bigger social media profile than Trump does. And I think that Trump, you know, is right now in a position of great weakness. He's in a position of weakness in Ohio itself um, relative to 2016. And, oh, yeah. and I think that there really is this question of fear coming from Trump. And when he goes after athletes, it's played a good, you've never had a president who was this interventionist on the politics of sports, quite like Donald Trump. I mean, and, and we know why, because it's a way to be racist uh, without being explicitly racist. And you can call out these players and it's red meat for your base. And they, they love the shut up and dribble um, analysis of it all. But at the same time, what it does is it also polarizes these questions and cements support for a lot of these athletes as well. I mean, so it's a really, it really is a double-edged sword when, when Trump goes after them. And when Trump's in a position of strength, like I would argue he was when he called the NF kneeling NFL players and Colin Kaepernick SOBs 
in Huntsville, Alabama, of all places, you know, that was, that was a blow. But, you know, when he's going after the NBA for saying that Black Lives Matter, it's kind of like, really? You know, it, it, so and it, it polarizes this question. Like, like, what do you have against saying that, particularly in the context of the largest demonstrations in U.S. history? And it makes it, you know, what this is one of the things I argued at the time uh, with the NBA and the players going on strike is that, remember, they did all that towards the tail end of the week of the RNC. And part of the big messaging of the RNC was to not take those struggles from the summer seriously, to say that they were all, this was anarchists, you know, burning down cities and, you know, we're about law and order and completely dismissing anything about George Floyd or Breonna Taylor um, or certainly Jacob Blake. And so what the players did was they were able to, by going on strike, they were able to recenter a lot of these questions around Black Lives Matter, which is where uh, they should have been all along. Yeah, what's striking, too, is that not only did Trump go after Kaepernick and others, but you had, uh, just like last week, I think, Joe Biden invoking Doc Rivers, a very powerful, you know, kind of a press conference yeah. talk he gave. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where, you know, normally uh, athletes kind of are window dressing, you know, for a campaign. Uh, and now it seems it's, there's, it's a far more centrality, which makes sense since sports is so big in American society. And, and I'll you know, say very quickly, I'm, I'm not the biggest Joe Biden fan in the world. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not, either. I, no, no, no. not at all. Yeah, yeah. But... No, I just wanted to finish <laughs> yeah. the sentence there. I oh, just I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that I thought his invocation of what Rivers said was ex- extraordinarily powerful. Yeah, like, yeah. The, the, the optics of a 77, 78-year-old, whatever he is, uh, you know, white politician who's been this entrenched centrist establishment figure for almost 50 years to invoke those words by Rivers and and, and, some, and for a section of his audience legitimize those words by Rivers. I, I thought that was really powerful. Yeah. Credit to Doc Rivers, but yes. I thought it was very bad in the movement, but very powerful when that was invoked. Uh, absolutely. You know, shifting over to some of the owners of some of these teams. And you just wrote an article about Tom Gores, the owner of the Pistons, who owns a predatory prison phone company. Dan Gilbert, owner of the Cavaliers, you know, co-founded Quicken Loans, which is a predatory payday lender. Uh, and then we also had um, Don Sterling and the Clippers. He was forced to sell the Clippers because of racist comments he made, you know, and talking about this sort of like player labor power, what sort of lesson should players in the NBA or the NFL or Major League Baseball take from Don Sterling's story and then like with the new, with in, not new information, but, you know, thinking about what Gores and Gilbert and them have. And, uh, and Kelly Leffler. And Kelly Leffler. Yeah, and, yeah, and Kelly Leffler too. <laughs> well, it's all about, um, you know, talking the talk versus walking the walk. And it's all about um, whether Black Lives Matter is just a, sort of a woke slogan, whether it's woke marketeering, woke capitalism, as the NBA tries to appeal to an and the WNBA tries to appeal to an audience that is uh, younger, more multiracial, and less tolerant of intolerance. You know, that's this young generation, and they want to appeal to them, but at the same time, they want to protect uh, the billionaires in their ranks, and so. I mean, we have to remember that, you know, Donald Sterling was only really expelled from the NBA uh, because one, he was caught on tape saying the N word and you don't get more radioactive than that in, in terms of media 
um, even though you could argue Donald Sterling should have been expelled years earlier for his racism, both in terms of how he treated his players and as, you know, one of the great slumlords in the history of Los Angeles County. And, you know, the largest racial discrimination housing suit in U.S. history was not leveled against Donald Trump, but it was leveled against Donald Sterling. But remember, we have to remember that, you know, and this was um, uh, like almost like an early canary in the coal mine of players' activism. Uh, the Clippers uh, and the Golden State Warriors were prepared to go on strike uh, before a playoff game um, in protest of Donald Sterling and calling for him to have to divest his team and sell it. And, you know, that, that was a moment of very specific crisis. That, there was like a lot of, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of boats lined up in the dock for this one. I mean, you had the changing of commissioners from David Stern to Adam Silver and him wanting to put down his own marker in terms of how the league would operate. You had Donald Sterling, who was, you know, just, just decades of embarrassment uh, towards the league in this prime market of Los Angeles, um, and, and you had also um, the players willing to go on strike. All of that worked together at the same time. Now, will the stars align to pressure Tom Goris to either divest from the Detroit Pistons or divest from this company, Securon, which is just the more I looked into it, the more hideous it was, you know, charging families, you know, $25 for 15-minute phone calls to have to actually connect with your loved ones behind bars. Um, or you mentioned Dan Gilbert here with predatory loan, uh, loan officer that he is. Um, so, you know, the, the, these things, I think the NBA has opened the door on, you know, and it's going to be interesting to see how much, uh, you know, rope they actually give players. You know, it's the same question about China and speaking out about China's labor practices for the NBA. I mean, it, it's how far are you willing to go with saying this league actually stands for social justice versus this league stands for woke marketeering? And actually, LeBron was kind of on the on the odd other side of that one. Um, I want to actually ask you something about Adam Silver, but do you want to just say a few things first? Because I'm not sure this gets as much attention as the NBA stuff. But the, the Kelly Leffler story, I think, is fascinating. The Atlanta Storm, and it seems like you know maybe there are other factors, but it seems like they put Ralph Warnock in the lead in the, in the Georgia Senate race right now, which you know I think kind of reflects on on the, the power they've had, and and you know just actually women athletes in general, like Maya Moore, Megan Rapinoe and others, but, you know, just oh, like Chisholm about Leffler. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. It's a, I mean, because Ke Kelly Leffler, um, there's so many things we can say about her that are just, just hideous, but, you know, she, she made, she herself made the decision that she was going to be the anti-Black Lives Matter and anti-politics and sports candidate. And her players in, in a league that is highly politicized um, fought back. And the league has backed the players in this process because um, the, the WNBA has been out front in terms of its politics, um, out front in terms of being front and center with being a, a league that's, that's black, being a league that's openly, you know, a lot of players are openly queer and that used to be a huge deal in the WNBA. And now, now it passes with that with barely a, barely a notice when players uh, get married or announce that they're having children. I mean, it's it, it, the league itself has changed. They've done events around uh, Planned Parenthood and um, fundraisers, like whole games that are fundraisers for uh, women's health clinics. I mean, it's 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 so far beyond uh, what other leagues are doing and what they have done. Um, and Kelly Loeffler, as a franchise owner, 
I mean, it's a league that she's openly hostile to. And the players have responded in kind to Kelly Loeffler. And, and that, that has been, that's new ground. That's absolutely new ground. That's, that's, uh, that, that we haven't really seen anything like that before um, in terms of like the consistent campaign of these players speaking out with great thoughtfulness and great politics against uh, somebody who's in this position of authority and power. Yeah. I just want to take a quick moment to do a station ID. Uh, folks, you're listening to Dave Siren, uh, Nation sports writer on the Green and Red podcast. You can follow the Green and Red podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel. And then uh, if you want to become a, don't, a patron, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash Green Red Podcast, or make a one-time donation at greenandredpodcast.org. Thank you. Um, you know, I want to ask you something about Adam Silver because I was kind of joking a few months ago that Adam Silver is like the most important guy in America, the most powerful guy in America. But the reality is he shut down the NBA when, you know, Trump was still calling coronavirus a hoax. And I think really kind of set into motion the fact that, you know, the country reckoned with it. And then, you know, kind of found out a, a fairly, uh, well, a very effective way of reopening sports, but also kind of creating this, you know, what I call a seminar in African-American history, which is surprising because he was always considered kind of something of an empty suit. Tony Kornheiser used to say, uh, the NBA needs a living, breathing commissioner or something like that. Um, I've never seen a commissioner who did those kinds of things before. Um, I mean, is he kind of getting pushback from other NBA owners? Or do you think this is kind of a, a new paradigm for sports executives? Uh, you know, Silver's actually, I think, kind of stepped up and obviously done more than Donald Trump has on the two critical issues of the day, racial issues and, and coronavirus. Mm. I mean, I, I think um, Adam Silver has been able to blaze his own path. It's interesting. Like, I'm always very skeptical of commissioners and people in power. But, you know, the players I talk to, you know, also have like some a, a lot of respect for him. Um, and because I think what Adam Silver recognized early on, and he saw this in LeBron James, was that this league, you know, post David Stern really needed to be dragged into the 21st century um, in terms of in terms of youth, in terms of what people want to see from their athletes, um, and in terms of uh, what people expect in terms of what they know about their athletes and what they think. Um, exposure, knowledge, publicity, um, it, you know, getting inside their heads a little bit. And I think that's something that Adam Silver has sort of operated with that template. While David Stern, I mean, they called him King David, you know, the players did, you know, this idea of him imperiously, uh, you know, lording over the rest of the players. And, you know, you're, you're never going to hear Adam Silver call a player son across a negotiating table the way David Stern called Dwayne Wade's son during uh, union negotiations. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a new age kind of commissioner. I think the best thing about, about silver, especially in compared to somebody like Roger Goodell of the NFL um, is that silver's not uh, reactive. Like he's not waiting for the next PR crisis to hit so he can have some kind of, you know, quick reaction to it that, you know, doesn't satisfy anybody but he's proactive. And I think like one, like one example of that was when they opened up the bubble, you know, there, there was some early rumblings that threatened to become a roar about, you know, these players getting all of this testing when a lot of folks couldn't get testing. And so the league just immediately invested all this money doing uh, testing in the city of Orlando. And, you know, it was, uh, it was PR, 
and it was a feather in the league's cap and it was part of the business and marketing plan, but it was also really smart and, and really an effective way to, before it became a big issue, to quiet uh, down the people who were, who were naysayers. Switching a little bit to women athletes, Bob kind of already touched on this a little bit, but we're seeing like women in sports like Maya Moore, uh, Megan Rapinoe, uh, Ami Osaka, who've been outspoken on issues of racism and attacking Trump. Um, you know, what do you see as the role of like female athletes in the public debate? Like, it seems like there's an increasing role. Bob mentioned the the Kelly Loeffler and the Atlanta Storm, but what what do you see as their role? I see as the the well, developing role. Well, I mean, first of all, what they've been are, are the trailblazers. Um, before Colin Kaepernick took his knee in August 2016, it was WNBA athletes over that summer uh, doing the work um, after the police killings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. Um, what Maya Moore has done in terms of leaving her sport in her prime to take on issues of criminal justice, I mean, that's something that we've never seen any athlete do. The closest thing you have is when Muhammad Ali was actually forced out of his sport and had his title taken away. And had several years where he was an openly political figure, yet couldn't actually play the sport that made him famous. I mean, Maya Moore's story is, is remarkable. It's cinematic, what she's put forward and done for the freedom of Jonathan Irons, who she's now uh, married to. Um, but in addition to that, like she's been working on broader issues of racism and criminal justice uh, during this time. I mean, just incredible from Maya Moore. Um, Megan Rapino has been... Um, somebody who's laid a template about how white athletes can be allies uh, in this fight against racism. And she was the first professional athlete to take a knee after Colin took his knee. So, you know, and, and she was the, also, I interviewed Megan Rapino recently, and um, she was the first person to really recognize that what Colin Kaepernick was doing was giving a language to athletes to be able to speak out, you know, giving a template that allowed them to speak out in a way that they couldn't speak out before. And I, so I think that their role is ongoing. Um, the way the WNBA was able to both be politically sharp and have incredible play in the bubble, or as they called it, the wobble. Um, and, and, you know, what Naomi Osaka did, and I mean, it was just amazing. And particularly how the announcers, people like Chris Everett, responded to Naomi Osaka and what she was doing and actually linking her political outspokenness with being more effective as an athlete. I mean, I just thought it was, it was incredible. Um, yeah, I'm kind of shifting around a little bit. And this isn't a big issue, but I always thought it might be. Um, I've noticed a few uh, ranking high school basketball recruits are either have either committed to HBCUs or are thinking about it. And I've always thought that that would be, you know, kind of one way to really kind of, you know, um, kind of upend uh, college sports because you have, you know, these, these coaches like Davo Swinney and Mike Gundy who are kind of pretty, pretty mm -hmm. bad. Uh, and if you started to see more, um, you know, high level recruits say, I'm not going to play for you, or I'm going to go play at Howard or Hampton, um, you know, do you, do you think that's going to kind of continue? Because, you know, I, I mean, I'm not sure right now, it's just something of the moment, but is there anybody working on that to try to say, Hey, you know, you need to look at these other places. Yeah. I don't know if anybody is working on that, but, yeah. it, but it's, you know, explicitly, but it's out there in the atmosphere yeah. in a way that it hasn't been in a long time, maybe since uh, Chris Weber uh, almost chose an HBCU instead of Michigan back yeah. in the early 90s. Um, because I think that there's a recognition also about the economic power of college athletes and the level of exploitation. So if you're going to be you know, exploited, um, you, you know, you might as well actually help these financially struggling HBCUs. 
And, and also for a lot of athletes, I mean, they, they talk, I mean, for, for a lot of these schools, it's the nearby HBCU where the athletes uh, end up hanging out, uh, black athletes, of course, because there is so much alienation um, on a college campus and racism at these big time schools um, that, you know, the HBC. And so it's like, if you're going to be hanging out and socializing at an HBCU anyway, um, you might as well have the experience of matriculating there. You know, sports is a, uh, I grew up in Texas uh, and, you know, sports is huge with like rural America, working class whites. And, you know, they're not typically reached with like progressive anti-racist ideas, you know, on, on the sort of like against side, I, I see a lot of people is like, well, I don't watch teams that kneel, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but we've also seen like NASCAR come out in like support of like Black Lives Matter think they banned all Confederate flags from their, from their events and a little less on sports, but like Harley Davidson also has kind of come out uh, with similar statements. And so, um, you know, what are some of the vehicles in which like sports fans that we can organize sports fans, particularly in like rural America amongst like working class whites to support these athletes and um, kind of move the needle a little bit on some, you know, on anti-racism and Black Lives Matter. Yeah, no, I think what, what the athletes have done in the white communities is, is polarize these questions. And so when it enters into those kinds of spaces, it, it has this power to sever the segregation that exists in this country and bring these issues at least before them. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to accept them in any way, shape or form, but it does have the power to at least lay the issue out in front of them in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. And again, that speaks to something we talked about before, but I think that's why the platform is policed. And that's something that, uh, who was it? Floyd Patterson said about Muhammad Ali way back when, is that he said when Ali's title was taken away, he said that he felt like Ali was being, um, even though he'd had his own tempestuous relationship with Ali, Patterson said that he felt like Ali was being forced to pay too high a price for his anti-war stances because he felt like uh, people were afraid that Ali would reach working class whites um, about the war. And so I think that there's a, a similar dynamic under play right now. Before we go, is there anything in particular uh, you're working on right now, a new book or yeah. a new project you wanna, you wanna tell us about? Well, it's not gonna come out till next year, but I'm working on a book. It's similar to, the, to Scott's question, actually. It's called The Kaepernick Effect. And I interviewed uh, dozens and dozens of high school and college athletes who took a knee and uh, they tell their stories in the book. You know, I've got my little forwards and whatnot, but most of the book is just interviews with them about what they did, why they did it, the backlash they received. And it's, it's, I find it incredibly fascinating, especially when it takes place in the kind of small towns and places like Iowa and Texas uh, and how the communities reacted. It's, it's very interesting. Just as a, a wrap up question, uh, I read People's History of Sports a couple of weeks ago and you know, to know when we were going to talk to you. And so it's really kind of taken with the story of uh, Lester Red Rodney. And I was wondering yeah. if you could just like tell folks a little bit about, uh, about Red Rodney. Wow. I mean, I mean, Lester died about uh, 10 years ago um, around this time. Uh, and I got to interview him a lot before he passed. He was the sports editor of the communist party's newspaper, the daily worker from 1936 to 1958. And he lived to be, I believe, 94. So, and he was very, very, very solid between his ears until he passed. 
So you were able to get a ton of stories from him about covering the Lewis Schmeling fight, for example, <laughs> or seeing uh, Jackie Robinson play well before Jackie Robinson entered Major League Baseball, of, of covering a, a rookie named Joe DiMaggio, of, you know, Satchel Paige. I mean, he, he had what's so amazing, and the part that I still don't know quite how this happened, was he had a press pass being with the Daily Worker. I mean, it says something about the legitimacy of the Communist Party in the 1930s, if nothing else. You know, I remember him asking me, it's like, well, why, why do you care about these stories? You know, it's so long ago, because he was a really humble guy. And I said, because they're, they're hidden histories. It's people should know about them. And I want to go around and tell people your stories. And Lester said, ah, to be 80 again. <laughs> that, that, that inspires me to this day. <laughs> Um, thanks so much. I think the issue of uh, sports is really important to the left. It's something like my whole life I've tried to, you know, you, I think you want to reach out and kind of make the left seem more, actually in a way, seem more American. And sports is surely one way to do that. I mean, when I teach, one of, the, one of the ways I teach about the way the economy works is I talk about uh, stadium financing, you know, like we pay for these stadiums for, for private things. So, and you've done like, you know, I've been following you, I don't know, for a long time now. And, you know, the stuff you've done and, and you know, the way you've kind of brought people like Popovich and Kerr early on into these issues of things like race and guns is really important. And, you know, um, this is really an exciting time for me as a longtime sports fan and, and as a lefty you know, kind of radical, whatever. So I, I really appreciate what you've done. And, and thank you for uh, talking with us. This has been really great. And, uh, you know, I could go on for another five hours because this stuff yeah. fascinates me. But uh, thanks so much. And um, we will obviously let everybody know, you know like where they can find more of your stuff. And I uh, really appreciate it. Terrific. And hopefully there will be reason for you to invite me back. That will oh, absolutely. No doubt. No doubt. No doubt. We, we will exploit you. So... <laughs> We'll Definitely. totally hit you up. Definitely when your new and, book uh, comes out next year. Oh, I would love that. All right, folks, you've been listening to Dave Zirin with The Nation, Nation Sports Writer on the Green and Red Podcast. As always, you can follow us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Check out our YouTube channel. Become a patron at patreon.com backslash Podcast, or make a one-time donation at greenandredpodcast.org. It has been great talking with everyone today. Take care. Mm-hmm.